welcome to our new series on the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host, Dr. Farah Khalid, and I am a consultant counselling psychologist and assistant professor in clinical psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy. Whilst I've specialised in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies, I also weave in cognitive behavioural therapeutic methods as well in my work. And you can learn much more about me in the episode notes, so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me and my background. I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or um, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist, also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma and I feel really honoured that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them and I feel very privileged for that opportunity and that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write into us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us 
on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. Okay, so Fatima, perhaps for our listeners, you can just give a, a short summary of what happens in the BFG. So the BFG was published in 1982, I believe. It's a story about a nine-year-old orphan named Sophie who is abducted by and befriended by the big friendly giant, the BFG. He abducts her and takes her away to the place that he lives in, and the place also houses nine other giants. Um, The story is about their friendship, how it grows. There's a theme of dreams that runs through the story, and we'll get more into that uh, in this episode. And the story ends with the BFG and Sophie using their friendship and help to, to get help from the Queen of England and the state to put away these, you know, man-eating giants and live happily ever after. So, yeah, that's that's what the story is about. And that those are kind of the major themes that we'll get into today. We'll spend some time talking about dreams, about the Queen and about the BFG's colossal ears. So just to start with, maybe Dr. Farah, you can say something about what you thought of Sophie and the BFG's relationship in the book. Yes, certainly. I was really struck by certain elements actually in their relationship and the way that they really bond together. So Sophie's understandably really, really scared. She's just been captured by this massive friendly giant uh, who is also very intimidating because of his size and he's this otherworldly sort of creature and the way that he creates safety actually now that I'm reflecting on it is he's introducing familiarity into his face so for example she's there as a small um, mini kind of uh, sized little girl and he's this giant and she doesn't know where she is she's in his personal home his personal space and he's really open and honest when she asks questions what are you eating what's this what's that for and he he tells her you know this is called a snus cucumber this is what giants eat Mm. so i think through that and it kind of it kind of takes me um, to the idea of how fear um, develops in, in humans is we're, we're always afraid of what we don't know, afraid of the unknown. And it's similar with emotions as well. When we don't understand what we're feeling or what somebody else is feeling towards us, it does understandably create a sense of anxiety and fear in us. So I really was struck by that, and I think that's how the BFG bonds together with Sophie. And okay. then the next... So my thoughts on that were, were similar but slightly different because I uh, read the first first quarter of the book and was quite distressed actually by a lot of the things that um, I was reading because if I was thinking of it therapeutically and if a nine-year-old came to us and said, this is what you know, a stranger is saying to me. It sounded a lot like coercion and uh, grooming in a way, where she doesn't have a lot of agency. He's befriending her, but there's something uncomfortable about that 
friendship. At least that's how it felt for me in the beginning. It changes later on and the dyna- and the power mm-hmm. in the relationship shifts when they're both able to contribute to it. But um, at the beginning, it is Sophie in this strange, unfamiliar place abducted from her, from the orphanage that she's in. Um, and it's almost, and you know, he's painted as, as this um, really daunting figure with giant ears and nose and a cape mm-hmm. flying through the lands. Um, so I, I responded to the bond differently in terms of safety. When we talk about that, I think there's a lot of unknown for Sophie and she kind of tiptoes around that for the first few chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point, Fatima. Yes, she does. She does tiptoe around that. And um, and, I, and I think perhaps later on she does feel like that is, you know, this is something that um, I can work with. You know, so like when she gets to know his... Uh, behaviors and what he what he's doing why he's doing that he captures dreams and he's actually out there to help children Uh, but yes that's a really important point um I think further than in the way that they after sort of their initial connection I think what really helps to stabilize their attachment or friendship is the sense of humor that Mm -hmm. they share together so they have this laugh you know that they laugh at the same things um and and also uh, the honesty that they have with each other. Would you say those are themes that you see often in your couple's work? Yes, definitely. I think I think the themes for me, whenever I'm sort of coaching or gently sort of teaching couples how to improve their communication, one of the things that I really like to kind of um, bring back sort of like a vitality into their relationship and attachment is a lot of the humour sometimes gets lost with couples who have, um, you know, gone through years of resentment, let's say. So a lot of couples uh, come to me with many years behind them. So they have a past, understandably. They have a set of traumas from each other, or, or perhaps a softer word to, to call it, is they have a set of grievances um, with each other. Some, some couples come with children, so their family system is more broader, mm-hmm. and then their worries obviously get shifted to, oh, you know, we don't want our kids to be damaged because of our problems. Mm-hmm. And so for me, as a couples therapist, I do try to inject humour into the session. So, for example, at the end, I might ask them both to say something funny that they've observed in the therapeutic hour with me, or one of my go-to intervention techniques um, is asking the partner to say, you know, would you like to say something that you've picked up about the, your other, you know, your partner, something that you really value about him or her, or something you've learned, something new that you didn't really see them in that way before. And I do that with both of them. They both have the space to do that. And that's essentially what they're coming for they're coming for feedback they're coming to learn more about each other in the presence of a third person i.e the, the couple's therapist mm-hmm. and and i find that humor in itself is a great equalizer it can um it can help people kind of making light of things and we know this that humor is one of is a really common coping mechanism also but i don't see that necessarily as a problematic one i think being able to laugh together with people or laugh about somebody in a way that doesn't feel um, hostile or vindictive or persecutory mm-hmm. can be very therapeutic in relationships. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you there. I think humour is a neutraliser, like you're saying, and it's almost like if I can add my words, it's an antidote to feeling shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, Sophie and the BFG don't really walk on eggshells around each other. They feel safe. So, for example, there's one point when Sophie is talking about, um, you know, there's these giants out there, these nine other giants, and they're, they're, they're gobbling up children, they're eating children. It's such a brutal and nasty and cannibalistic thing to do. And the BFG is actually saying, hold on a minute. And he's gently teaching her, like, hold on, but aren't you humans? You're, you humans are not any better than us because you actually kill your own kind. And giants don't kill other giants, even though it's horrible and nasty that they kill children. And she kind of really receives that well. Similarly with couples work, I see couples really getting to a point where they're really kind of criticizing each other, whether it's their appearance, you know, whether it's, the husband or the wife or the partner who's you know put on weight and they're criticizing their appearance or they're criticizing the way that they are in their mother or father role like you know you're not doing this right or it could be anything small like a small behavior and those small criticisms actually serve as little doses of shame and I think for those couples where they've had a personal history of trauma and shame from their own parental home that causes more um, distress for the partner than in the marriage. I think if they don't come from that environment or the environment is more cushioned by support, then they can survive the marital criticism much better. Um, so I feel, I, I feel that one of the main themes that I uncover in my couple's practice is, you know, they are walking around eggshells on each other and they're so afraid that if I say something honestly in this therapeutic hour with our therapist, my partner's going to judge me and mm -hmm. criticise me. So, so humour is a way of being honest without necessarily being hurtful or shameful? Yes, I believe so. I think the humour has to be used very thoughtfully though. Yeah. It can't be used as a... Because you know how before earlier you were saying about humour can be used as a coping mechanism? Yeah. That was such an important point because that made me think about how some people can also use humour in a very punitive and sadistic way, but I think it's got to be used in a, in a thoughtful way, effectively. One of the other things I noticed reading this as an adult, and I'm almost scared to say it, but there was a sexual element to a lot of the things in this, for example, the... There, is, there are lots of phallic symbols, for example, his big thumb um, that sticks out of his shoe and the snow's cucumbers that he eats. Mm -hmm. um, the yeah. long trumpet. The long trumpet. There's lots of stuff in there. What, what sense did you make of it, Dr. Farah? I also agree. I think, I think they do carry this sexual element between them, particularly in the beginning mm. when, you know, when she's first in his habitat, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that they both carry it really, really well. And the reason why I say that is because so their connection's really firm or it begins to become firm through their shared um, humour and the kindness that the BFG actually extends to Sophie. However, it's not, it's not so malleable. Like it, it's malleable in the fact that there is some flexibility they teach each other things about their ways. So, for example, Sophie talks about how, you know, giants are not kind of behaving well. I mean, they're brutal. They shouldn't be doing that. 
and the BFG also gently nudges Sophie into this idea that, well, your humankind is, is, is not that different, really. And um, so there is some teaching of, of, of their, you know, viewpoints, and they don't actually use that as a, as a point of conflict or disagreement. They, they carry that, they carry their different viewpoints really well in their relationship, I feel. They don't, it doesn't seem that they're offended by each other's viewpoints. Um, but but I do think that it's important to acknowledge that she's been abducted and taken to a place that isn't hers and there's this giant essentially who's holding her hostage um, and she says at different points and I can't remember exactly where but kind of you know things that would be could be read as uh, I don't really want to be here but I'm here and then if that changes and that evolves as the story goes on and their friendship you know the power in that equalizes but I just remember feeling, you know, th there's a sexual charge to a lot of mm -hmm. that dialogue in the beginning. No, there, there certainly is. And it does evolve over time. I So for me, this actually still is a useful model for what a healthy relationship is. Because if we think of the father-daughter energy, and we go with Freud's idea of the phallic stage and the Oedipal elements between father and daughter, the, re the, the difference between overt sexual abuse for me, which is not in this relationship, the difference is that they, that's why I was kind of sort of saying that they carry it really well in the fact that they don't act. Let's say supposing BFG does think these things in his mind, in the depths of his mind. Um, there's, no, there's no overt acting on any sexual fantasies. So I think for that reason, for me, it, it, it's still a useful model of what a healthy relationship is, barring the, you know, what you just said, Fatima, barring the kind of the beginning bit where it's a little bit sort of murky and Sophie doesn't really know what's happening or what he might do to her. The other place that I'd really like us to draw our attention to is how the BFG listens. And there's a really interesting um, part here where on page 36 where it says what's more i is hearing those footsteps very loud the bfg said when a ladybird is walking across a leaf i is hearing her feet going clumpity clumpity clump like giant's footsteps so here we learn about how sensitive the bfg actually is to sound and in uh, and, and one point in the book as well, Roald Dahl talks about colossal ears and how the BFG has this, these really giant instruments to listen. And that's how he actually listens to dreams. That's how he can listen to whether a dream is a nightmare or a good dream. And this quote really resonated with me. Um, it's interesting you say that because as I was reading this, I was reminded of... Um, Freud student Theodore Reich's book, um, Listening with the Third Ear. It's quite a popular text and it really is about how and a lot of the work that you and I do is about listening with the third ear. It's almost like growing a third ear and listening to what is being said, but you know, overtly or covertly when it's being said. Is it being said at the beginning of a session, at the end of the session? What the, really the nuances of it and getting into it. And how that, that it's actually a lot more complex than it sounds, and it's a skill that develops over time. 
um, and it requires doing something that's actually quite tricky, which is being tuned into somebody else and your internal responses at the same time. And being so, he the BFG does something quite similar. You know, this the layers that he can hear uh, when he's commu communicating with Sophie. He's listening to what she has to say, and he can at the same time hear all of these other sort of um, sounds from parallel, mm -hmm. you know, non-universes but parallel places. Mm -hmm. um, so to to me, I thought it was quite a remarkable parallel. Absolutely, and um, as therapists, one as a therapist must grow what I call, and I'm paraphrasing Dr. Irvin Yalom's words, rabbit ears. We have to grow these massive rabbit ears and actually listen to, like you said, tune into what the patient is, um, um, not only what they're saying, but what our patients are, the way in which they tell us um, things that they have to say to us. And for me, that's really, really instrumental in my work. And I also use these, I also use these uh, ears to listen to my patients' dreams as well. So there is a quote that I extracted from the book that you just mentioned, Fatima, and I'd like to share it with our listeners. So it goes, we remember details of another person's dress and peculiarities in his gestures without recalling them. A number of minor points, an olfactory nuance, a sense of touch while shaking heads, too slightly observed, warmth, clamminess, roughness or smoothness of the skin, the manner in which he glances up or looks, all of this we are not consciously aware and yet it influences our opinion. The minutest movements accompany every process of thought, muscular twitches in face or hands and movements of the eyes speak to us as well as words. So I'm actually connecting this with a lot of the, you know, this is the work that we do and it takes an enormous amount of energy. And I think it's also connected to a lot of the, the research around CPTSD and early mother-child relationships where being heard and being seen are so core to the development of the self. Um, and I don't know if you're quoting from The Gift of Therapy, is that the book you're quoting from? Rabbit oh. Ears, yes. So the, I remember uh, there's a chapter that talks about this and the exact chapter escapes me. But uh, the author writes about how sensitive the, the third ear is to changes in our lives. So a new relationship, uh, moving, all of these things, and how that is a capacity we develop over time, but we can't always sustain it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that stayed with me also, where mm -hmm. it's, it's active listening. That's another term that's quite commonly used mm -hmm. when we're talking about listening with the third ear. When you're listening to how the person is saying things, the emotions, the the tone, the mm. bass, the volume, all of these things are tied into it. But, um, yeah. Yeah, deep listening. It's deep listening. And deep listening certainly does come with time. And there is a real art to it. It's kind of like knowing yourself to such an extent, the self-knowledge, that you're bringing yourself as a therapist, but also knowing the patient very deeply. And to know the patient very deeply, the therapist must track the patient's own life, their narrative. If there's dream material, then to track the dream material. It's kind of knowing another soul. That For, for me, that's where the depth comes in, in therapy. And um, 
I was also connecting this with, because music holds a very special place in my heart. Um, as I was growing up in my early life, I've always been a very fond music listener. Um, and Aaron Copland has written a book called What to Listen for in Music. So he talks about the three aspects of music. There's, there's three planes of how we listen to music. And do we, are we listening to music just from a listener's perspective? Or from are we listening to it from what we're interpreting the music to be? The melody, the rhythm, the emotional tone? Or do we listen to the track and the song from a composer's point of view? So the patient comes to us in our consulting room, they are actually composing their words, their vocabulary, their narrative to us. And I myself as a therapist always make myself or ensure that I try and do this, do my best, is to, well, let's see it from a composition point of view. They're composing these words. What, what is the motivation or intention of them composing it? So it's like me getting into the patient's skin, crawling around in the skin to try and feel what they're feeling. Why are they using these words? Um, and it, uh, well, I, I enjoy music, but I don't know very much about it, except that one of the things about music, and perhaps that's universally true, is that it moves us. Um, and in thinking of how significant that is in terms of the work we do, where we have to be moved by the client to actually do something uh, you know, meaningful for them. We have to allow ourselves to be moved, just as we have to allow ourselves to be moved by music. So mm -hmm. to me, it feels uh, similar in that sense, where we have to open ourselves up to listening to what they're saying and, and responding in a way. Oh, absolutely. And when you say opening up, that's so important because we actually have to be the vessel, which is the maternal part of being a therapist. Um, and we do, we have to be the container, we have to open ourselves up, and actually that's a risk that we take as therapists. Yes. Of course there is something in there, the BFG said. You was looking at a frightsome trouble humper, but you told me dreams were invisible. There is always invisible until there is captured, the BFG told her. After that, there is losing a little of their invisibility. We are seeing this one very clearly. So this little section from page 77 in the book talks about the BFG explaining dreams to Sophie and, and how she sees them as their dream catching. And dreams are a big theme in the book in itself. It starts with a dream, it ends with a dream. Uh, it's littered with dreams. Um, so just just in this section, we'll talk a little bit about dreams and the different layers to the dreams in the in this book. Um, I know Dr. Farah, you have lots to say about that. So mm -hmm. what did you think of the way Roald Dahl depicts dreams? Um, the first place that I'd like to start is Roald Dahl um, was actually a Viking. So his his parents, we know, um, from his autobiography were Norwegian immigrants and of course we call them Vikings so he is from a Viking lineage and which means that it's very likely that his parents and his grandparents probably had adopted or were exposed to some sort of Norse mythology 
So in Norse mythology, we know that there were multiple gods because this was before the birth of kind of Christianity or at least before the acceptance of Christianity and the idea of one higher being, you know, or one god. So in Norse mythology, um, I can actually see how Roald Dahl's um, uh, family lineage has been sort of projected. So one, we know that there are nine giants and I'm asking myself, why did Roald Dahl think about nine? There's mm -hmm. got to be something important about the number nine. And we know in Norse mythology that there are nine underworlds. So these are worlds where, you know, people um, after death can go and they are, you know, to do with the gods and goddesses. Um, and there is one main god who is known as the father of the gods called Odin, O-D-I-N. And uh, he also, nine is a very significant number because he apparently had sacrificed himself on, by hanging himself on the tree of life for nine, nine days and nine nights, something like that. Um, and what we know about dreams is when, when they enter into dream country, Roald Dahl and Sophia kind of, you know, on this journey, they're getting into dream country and Roald Dahl says that there is a lot of swirling mist there. Um, and that again is related for me to Norse mythology and I'm not sure if Roald Dahl was actually thinking about this ninth underworld as he was deciding how to um, create this story of dream country. What is dream world like? It's foggy, it's misty, it's scary because you can't see your way. It's almost like being in a fog. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting, and maybe it was never explicitly discussed with his parents, or but his understanding of this is what the dream world looks like could, you're right, be rooted in what his family was exposed to and what they carried forward. Because for lots of people, if we talk to them here in Pakistan, uh, dreams are divine communication. So they're messages from God in some ways, uh, or they are pointing you in a certain direction, but they're divine communication, which is kind of rooted in this religious belief the predominant belief here so what dreams look like what the dream world looks like very much is a cultural you know thing absolutely uh, Fatima and that actually connects with um, in Norse culture um, there was kind of two very main branches of belief so a lot of people would believe that it was foretold fate by the gods like you're saying in our Pakistani communities uh, people often think it is a message from um, God or Allah um, and the other branch of people would think oh it's nonsense mm -hmm. like you know dreams are just dreams mm -hmm. um. okay so uh, how do you think what role do you think dreams have played in other cultures or you know uh, other cultures that you're familiar with I really liked how Roald Dahl um, split it up. So because we have to remember that the audience is children, um, and I think it's a nice introduction to children about how, it's a nice introduction to children about how, how dreams are either, okay, they're very good, and they make you feel excited and, you know, happy, or there are dreams that are really bad, mm -hmm. the so-called nightmares. Um, so that made me think of um, how Roald Dahl has actually done a lot of polarization here um, to do with, you know, there is either a good dream mm -hmm. or there is a bad dream, which is a nightmare, and there's nothing in between. 
So that's okay. I, I respect his kind of depiction in terms of because it's a child audience, but my adult self it kind of went beyond my comfort zone because I was thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's not really it. You know, there are some dreams that have got so many layers in them and we know that as an adult mind, when we go to analyze our dreams, we can decipher the different layers and it's not just, oh, having a happy dream or having a bad dream, it's actually a mixture of many different things. Um, and it reminded me of uh, Melanie Klein, the psychoanalyst, um, who also talks about the good breast and the bad breast and the polarization. I think Roald Dahl may not have consciously done this, but I feel that it was purposeful. He's done it because um, children kind of need to be introduced to what dreams are because it's scary for them. They don't really know what's going on at night unless their parent or, or caregiver can actually explain to them um, you know, about things like night terrors and things like that, that children typically have. It, it's a normal part of growing up, really. Mm -hmm. And and the, the binary, the good and the bad, is very much a developmental thing also, right? For children, they're much more likely to be able to see things as black and white and being able to hold the good and bad together is something that developmentally happens later. Absolutely, it does. And if we look at the word nightmare and look at the etymology, like, you know, where the word comes from, um, if we look at mare, mare is really interesting because mare actually means um, a demon or a goblin who torments others with frightening dreams. That's interesting. It is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's an old English word. So, I mean, we can sort of like guess there that in, uh, you know, in prehistoric times, there was this idea that a nightmare was this goblin or Satan-like person or figure, um, creature who actually does a lot of tormenting. So that kind of can make us wonder whether uh, back then there was this belief or largely a belief that this is something that we cannot control. Dream life is something that is beyond one's control hmm. that makes a lot of sense and and then i was also thinking about how in indian and tibetan culture so we've got the hindu culture and we've got the buddhist culture and it, they also actually do this what you said earlier fatima about the developmental idea of splitting because we do actually need to hold we do need to split good from bad first developmentally to make sense of things such as dreams um, and people of course in our lives and then afterwards later on we are then able to merge and integrate good and bad and mix them together mix those elements together um, so Indian and Tibetan culture do a lot of splitting as well so they have a very simple division system um, which is for auspicious dreams auspicious means good dreams um, they call it subha, and for inauspicious dreams, which is like a bad dream or a nightmare, they call it asubha. And in Tibetan culture, it's swapna for good dreams and duh swapna for bad dreams. And then in another Buddhist um, branch of philosophy, they also talk about dreams being in two bits. So one dream category is oh you know it had a really good desirable effect it's a has a desirable effect which is called istapala 
And then the opposite of that would be, oh, you know, this dream had a really undesirable effect on me or a bad effect on me. And that's what they call anistapala. So I think we can see from, from other cultural um, uh, belief systems like Buddhism or, or Norse mythology, or you take, you know, Hindu culture, it's actually widely... Uh, widely believed that we, you know, we early on in, in, in human history, we did, and we still do to some extent, we still do consider dreams as having a good effect on us or having a bad effect on us. But, but you would agree that dreams are not necessarily always good or bad. No. Um, and they can be all of those things. And it's no surprise that Klein called it the depressive position because coming to terms with that is a little depressing. Um, and sometimes dreams are even if they're not bad. Yes, they are. And it requires some mourning, mm. some, some grief mm. work. Absolutely. So as a clinician, if you were analyzing the dreams, the constellation of dreams in this book, like you might do with your patients, what would you say, Dr. Farah? Ah, oh, that's a really interesting question. Very important. As I was looking at the dreams, what really struck me in terms of the collection of dreams that Roald Dahl really um, puts in to the BFG, um, I'm going to select some words. So in the dreams, there is like this, this, this child is climbing Mount Everest. Then in another dream, uh, and they are, of course, really funny. Uh, in another dream, there is a child who's inventing. Then we've got another dream um, where this child or little boy I think an eight-year-old boy he's growing a bushy beard <laughs> that the all the other boys are jealous of mm -hmm. then in, in another dream this boy um, is able to jump out of a high window and float down safely mm -hmm. if we really look at these for a moment climbing inventing growing jumping and then there's another dream where the child is making um electric lights go on and off just by wishing it which is magic really isn't it mm -hmm. and every child wants to be able to do that mm -hmm. when I think about these words it makes me think of uh, normal sort of normal or healthy or typical narcissism which we all have to go through as children this sense of being special this sense of having control over our environment mm. There is a fine line, though, between that and what I would call grandiosity in terms of the, what we see in narcissistic problems. I think the reason why Roald Dahl has actually put these dreams in, not just to make children laugh when they read it, because it is really funny, mm -hmm. and a lot of children are going to resonate with this, um, it's, it's also because he himself suffered a lot of humiliation and shame, at least what I read into his autobiography, um, in his school life, mm. he was caned. Yes, that is a big part of his life and he writes about that. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about how you think that connects? Mm -hmm. So there are teachers where, you know, uh, he, where, who, who, teachers who've caned him and often for things that he didn't do, his friends were, were responsible for, or, you know, little kind of naughty behaviours. And that in one part, part of um, his autobiography, he talks about how he says he he says something like 
in fact, I have never gotten over it. Mm. Even as an adult writing his autobiography, he has never ever got over the cane, on, you know, on his, on, uh, he was getting the cane on his back. Um, and on his backside, and, and, I, and he even says in his autobiography how even now, if he sits on a hard back chair, he will still feel shudder with just the, the, the feeling of like being caned. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting because being caned is still very much a prevalent practice in a lot of Pakistani schools. Mm -hmm. And we know that now of all the research that's gone, gone into it, and we know how being beaten up, there's lots of different things that happen, but we also know that the mind and the body are connected much more deeply than we thought before, and that explains why he still shudders, um, you know, till much later in his life. But another big element that surfaced over the last couple of um, decades of research is how one thing it really communicates to children is that they have no autonomy over their body, and what happens when you are beating a child up is you're reinforcing the idea that they don't get to control what happens to it and how damaging that can be. And especially with things like, you know, sexual abuse and uh, other types of experiences. And as adults also, you know, being in relationships where you are consenting, but also feeling like you cannot say no mm -hmm. and, and how tricky that, that line is. Mm -hmm. But all of these things are so deeply connected, that sense of loss, that sense of loss of power, autonomy and injustice that really that really fits together what you've said and if we connect it with Waldahl then that sense of helplessness you said or having not you said something about um, not having autonomy over one's body and actually it's a betrayal mm -hmm. of a very very deep kind someone's betraying your your sense of sense of self and existence in the world which is why which is why um, there is this, uh, why a lot of children grow up with this deep sense of being humiliated. But what makes it worse is when the abuse happens in front of the gaze of other people. Mm. And Roald Dahl was caned in front of other school children. And so for me, I mean, I was of course very sad reading it. And it just made sense to me how he's then in his BFG story, he's talking about these children in their dreams doing so many things that that they feel free, you know, like jumping out of a high window. I mean, that the adrenaline rush that a child would feel with that and inventing a car and climbing Mount Everest, making something. So that made me think of creativity and the life instinct. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also another dream where I, I think there is um, this boy who, who writes something and it becomes like this famous piece in the world. So it's about being noticed and being noticed to such a degree that they have to be the best or they have to be famous. That's okay growing up as a child. Every child needs to feel special. For me, the pathology that I see in people or the problems they start to have in relationships is where is is where the 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 desire to be special just becomes too much mm. yeah it's it, it's just too much it, it, it's not it's not typical anymore it's it, so if you have like a male in their 30s compared to a seven-year-old boy it's a very different matter for a, a man in his 30s or 40s or 20s sitting and saying how he wants to create some, the most you know 
famous thing or whatever his desires are, his fantasies, and that that's where we get to narcissistic problems. It's not through what they're showing you, but getting into the patient's fantasies. What do they fantasize about themselves? Hmm. That's that's really interesting. And um, so we, we're talking a little bit about children and their psychology. Um, and we also recognize that children are the primary audience for this book. Reading it as an adult is very different from reading it as a child. Uh, what role do you think dreams play in the lives of children and what significance do they have for children? I feel that for children, um, they have night terrors. So this is like a normative period between around four years and 12 years. It doesn't have to have to happen. So for parents out there, our parent listeners, don't worry if your children, you know, don't worry if your child hasn't had a night terror. It's okay. <laughs> Um, but if they have had night terrors, and I like I explain a little bit about what the composition of that is and what that looks like, uh, but it usually happens between four and twelve years old, um, and up to about forty percent of children have at least one night terror in their school life. So that's round about roughly the, the the prevalence that we're looking at globally. And night terrors are not the same as nightmares, so it often parallels with like if your child's uh, waking up sleepwalking and they actually look quite dazed and confused, that's where you'll notice that, okay, they're having a night terror. The first sign of a night terror is they will scream. Hmm. Yeah, they'll, they'll just scream. Okay. Um, anything else that, you know, that happens with night terrors? Yeah, they sit up in bed and it usually happens in the first half of the night. So let's say you've put your child to bed, um, let's say eight or nine, for example. Um, you would expect to see the child or hear, hear your child have a night terror between then and about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't normally happen in early hours of the morning. And it also happens in what we call non-REM sleep. So for parents out there, what we mean by REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where we kind of have like dreams. And um, so this normally happens when, the ch when your child is not dreaming. And it can actually be really scary for parents. Um, and, and I mean, I'm a parent myself, so I can understand it's really scary when you don't know what's going on and your child's screaming. You just want to kind of grab them and hold them and, you know, hug them tight and reassure them that, you know, everything's fine. Uh, so those are the main characteristics and signs that you want to be looking at. So, so we, we know what that looks like and how that presents, but do we know what night terrors look like for children? What do they experience? Are they just nightmares or are they different from nightmares? Ah, okay, yeah. Um, for, for children, they would, they would kind of say, um, I've had like a bad dream. So they will say, I've had a bad dream. Um, they won't necessarily know the difference in school age, what a bad dream or what a night terror is. Mm -hmm. They will just wake up really, really confused. Um, and they would, they, there's a lot of fear associated with it, with night terrors. Mm -hmm. So it's about kind of the boundary for me. It's about the boundary between conscious waking life and when then they go to sleep mm -hmm. they're, they're still learning about this other world out there about sleep life okay that's really interesting and it's also interesting that it happens during non-REM sleep um, but the intensity matches something quite quite uh, you know intense absolutely and a terrible dream yes okay so um, dreams have come back into the discourse, you know, popular discourse over the last year, um, especially over Twitter and other places. 
um, since we've been in this pandemic, a lot of people have reported that they are having vivid or very powerful dreams or, or even recurring ones. Um, what sense do you make of it, Dr. Farah? Oh, yes. I think this is really important to talk about, actually, especially for our listeners out there who we are all in this transitional time in history. We don't know, but we can only predict what's going to happen in the sort of next 10 to 20 years. Um, but this always happens in history. Whenever, if you look back and study for those out there who are actually historians and better historians than me and Fatima, um, if you have a look at whenever there's been a pandemic, like if it was the Spanish flu or if it was the um, plague in the Dark Ages, in the Middle Ages, if you, if you always have a look at that, um, there's always something that happens afterwards. So whenever there's a pandemic, something shifts. There's either growth or there is a Great Depression afterwards in world history. And now, of course, we're in the technological age, so we don't know what's going to happen. But I actually, before I kind of get into um, the research, currently what we know about pandemic dreams, which will help all of us know what's, what's happening, is... I actually think, I actually believe personally that this is a wake-up call for humanity. I feel that we're in a, I think it's a call to consciousness. And I know that this is my own bias because I'm, <laughs> I'm a psychoanalyst and, you know, I work with the unconscious. But I, I do feel it's a call to consciousness. I feel it's one of the messages to just slow things down, slow the pace down um, globally. That's interesting because... Uh, I think this was particularly, and for, for myself, also happening right at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, so the first few months. And the sense that I made of it then with clients and for myself was that a lot of people's anxieties and existential anxieties about safety, about you know what happens and, and lack of information that we had, about, and, and we still do, uh, but they were very much at a, on the surface. So people were having very uh, dreams about catastrophe, uh, waking up anxious, um, having nightmares and maybe there was something quite existential about it also would you say? I would agree with that mm. certainly it's very existential and if we have a look at the um, dream literature so for example um, there is a study that's been published in sleep medicine just a couple of months ago this year um, and they did, a, they, they did a study with an Italian population on pandemic dreams during the lockdown. And it does connect with your experience, Fatima, mm -hmm. about, you know, this existential anxiety and, and actually dreaming about apocalyptic mm -hmm. uh, situations. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very, very common, especially among females. So what we know is that female, female adolescence aggression has actually increased during the pandemic. And this kind of goes back to the idea of how um, the, the biology uh, between female sex and male sex is actually different. And we know, we know broadly that in terms of the mental health conditions, females, because of our neurobiological setup, we are actually more vulnerable to experiencing conditions like anxiety and stress and depression. So from this Italy research, they, I think they did it on uh, about 1,091 um, people, and it was kind of usually mixed uh, boy, you know, there was males and females there. And, and what they found were very interesting, what very 
interestingly they found was that the emotional climate of COVID dreams were really were very correlated with the reality that we were facing as a, as a human human species and so a lot of the themes that were coming up were um, having a look at catastrophes and then there was there was there were a lot of females who were actually in hospitals and they'd had the virus or a family member was actually ill and sick and they needed to rescue their family member so that kind of goes back to um, this existential um, dilemma really about death I, I think for me what speaks about what speaks to me about this is death anxiety mm. and I think as a population we didn't a lot of people, some people are aware, and I think a small percentage of those people who probably are in psychotherapy or are very kind of after analyzing themselves and have really analyzed their unconscious, they would be aware of their death anxiety and mortality. But a large part of us probably, because we need defenses, we can't be thinking about death 24 seven of the day. We need the defenses to cope with life, otherwise we, we wouldn't be living our life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, the pandemic actually was an um, was a trigger, and a lot of people's death anxiety that was buried unconsciously. All of us have it, but some of us have it more than others. And there's also two layers to it, right? Of course, the the situation was such where people's lives were genuinely at risk, and the nature of what we were going through and are still experiencing is is life threatening. But also. Um, people's lives came to a screeching halt like with with the lockdowns and you know not going into work so the momentum and the pace and the speed that they were used to was suddenly disrupted and and I think that created this you know environment for that death anxiety to really surface in a way that we might not have experienced if this had not happened no absolutely that's making me think of think of another um point about how it was a forced isolation almost even if you're living in the same family a lot of people very sadly um a lot of people have have undergone further abuse during the lockdown because of um problematic relationships or if they're living with parents who are already abusive and now because they can't they can't go out with their friends or they, they don't have the breathers that they normally do their, their, their default coping mechanisms like you know speaking with friends going out everything was shut restaurants were shut social um social kind of places were all shut so i think a lot of families have suffered a lot you know greatly due to the lockdown for some for some people where perhaps you know couples were living apart and they've now been able to spend a lot of time together due to the lockdown that their relationships have significantly improved so we've seen lots of shades of colors here um, in terms of the effects of the lockdown but but i just to return to my point though i, I think i think it was almost like and this is the buddhist in me the buddhist part of me it was a forced isolation um like you know a buddhist monk going up into a cave for 40 days when we don't really i wouldn't really prescribe that to my patient but <laughs> because it, it's kind of like you know how feasible is it to go into a cave and live there for 40 days although it would be a wonderful experiential exercise I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. That's that's quite important, and it was none of us signed up for it. It was just something that came out of nowhere. So it would make sense why all of these anxieties and questions about relationships we are in, the people that we live with, the way that we live our lives, um, were asked in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise. 
The pandemic has certainly hit us as a species and as mankind. When I was deliberating over the current dream research that I had referenced earlier, it spoke to me in a way where it really supports Freud's model of, of, of dreams and why we dream. So we know from research that um, a lot of people have seen animal imagery in their dreams, which has correlated with the first lockdown that we had last year in 2020. And this does show a lot of support for this idea that there is a continuity and there's a spectrum between um, our waking life, what happens around us in our conscious reality. So the pandemic hitting us as a as a um, as a global humanity, and then when we go into dream life, we're seeing similar kind of similar um, emotional catastrophes. And so this idea that the waking life doesn't really stop entirely when we enter into dreamlike states. There is, it's, it's actually fluid. And that's what Freud argued. Freud's model of dreams argues that there is this um, magnetic pull. So when we actually enter into, into dreamlike state, then our unconscious extracts like a magnet, a piece of our waking life. So something from our external reality gets extracted and mixed up together with a piece of our unconscious part. And that unconscious element might be a conflict that we're not aware of, because of course it's in our unconscious. Um, it might be a desire, which is again, not part of our awareness. It might be a, you know, a wish or a conflict or some kind of fears that we have. It's all to do with our, our emotional life. And when we're conscious, we tend to keep our emotions at bay for, for a good reason, of course. So for me, the current dream research does support Freud's contention about dreams. And another interesting piece of research that I read, which is very current, it was published this year in 2021, was um, an experiment that researchers did where they were looking at the the kinds of dreams that we have across the night. So this, so they split up the dream into kind of two halves, and what we found is that the first four hours of our nightlife. So let's say supposing somebody goes to bed around ten eleven at night. So like the first four hours until two, three o'clock in the morning is where the dream imagery reflects what the person, what the dreamer um, has in their conscious life. So in, in the context of the pandemic, people would normally have pandemic dreams in the first half of the night. And then the last, the last four hours of the night, sort of like the early morning, we could say supposing between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning. In that kind of dream life, we see different elements. We don't see so much of, of connections between the dreamer's conscious waking life, what's going on in their life and their dreams, but we see more of like bizarre imagery in dreams or archetypal elements. So one example of an archetypal dream might be dreaming about 
animals, for instance. So maybe dreaming about um, a unicorn or a phoenix or some sort of majestic animal which the dreamer has never dreamt of before, perhaps. You know, or certain kind of majestic images and more, 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 more complex and more more to do with primordial elements for example dreaming about worms about reptiles that kind of thing which of course doesn't really fit with conscious reality unless the person is living with reptiles in a way you know so i found that very interesting and we know that freud argued dreams were the dreams are the royal road to the unconscious and jung also contended that dreams um, are, are a reflection of unconscious psychic activity. So like the BFG says, dreams is very mystical things and human beings is not understanding them at all. Not even their brainiest professors is understanding them. <laughs> And there's lots of dreams in this and we won't get a chance to. And perhaps that's the meatiest bit of this mm -hmm. um, story. And one I imagine most of our readers, children, uh, most of our listeners, you know, uh, children or adults would enjoy the most. Because they're funny, they're interesting, they're absurd sometimes. Mm -hmm. And while we won't get a chance to go into all of them, I think the one that really stood out for me was the one on page 98, which is about having a bath and having the child uh, child dreaming of his belly button being pressed and then disappearing and then reappearing again. Um, and how sort of, you know, being seen and unseen ties into that. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on this, Dr. Sarwa. I certainly do. So I actually felt that this, so this, this little boy is actually in the bath and he's pressing his tummy button really, really hard. Later on, he, uh, he becomes invisible through uh, pressing his um, belly button and he goes out on the streets and then he ends up kind of frightening one of his teachers, one of his school teachers. For me, I thought that there was a theme of the trickster energy in here. So it's a bit like him teasing and also a lot of control. Like he, he needs to have so much control of him being, like you said, unseen, invisible but also seen and he can actually magically control that through his belly button and also it's interesting that the three people mentioned here are the policeman the teacher and the father all people in positions of power mm. yes they are all positions of power and the other place that 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 held some significance for me too is if i think about a lot of the themes that i work with in my practice a lot of the people that come for help is it it can also be seen as exhibitionism in some ways because he's shocking the teacher by pressing his belly button and whoa he comes you know and the, the teacher's shocked and in exhibitionist tendencies although it's very sexual of a sexual nature people do have this desire and they do get aroused by shocking strangers or familiar people with their nudity so if, we, if I was to really stretch it to pathology, I would see ex exhibitionist um, tendencies here for this boy. And if this was a parent coming for advice or consultation for their little boy 
shocking people, then that would be something that would be on my mind in terms of his life trajectory. So the more pressing issue for me here is Roald Dahl's use of the belly button, which is the human navel. Mm -hmm. And this is where the umbilical cord is. And so umbilical cord, it comes from the word umbilicus, which is Latin meaning center. And this is the very first human scar that we actually have, you know, when we detach ourselves from our mother's placenta. Um, and, I, and I think this took me off to some, some, some other area, but I believe... I had the exact same thought. I thought it was interesting that he... It's the belly button and the symbolic significance of that, and, and that also tying into being seen and unseen, existing and not existing, uh, being connected with the mother and being an individual. Mm -hmm. separation, individuation, all of these words kind of came to my head and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about the belly button. Mm -hmm. So the belly button is um, the, at the centre and that made me think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. So Vitruvian Man, for some of our listeners might be aware, uh, and there's some that might be new to this, is that Leonardo da Vinci actually painted um, this image of a, of a man who is in two positions, his arms and legs are apart and also together in a circle and a square at the same time. So what Leonardo da Vinci was thinking was this is the golden ratio of man. So we know that Leonardo da Vinci was into geometry, he was a mathematician as well as an artist. So the reason why he depicted this image was actually showing the world, showing us what the ideal proportion of the human body is. And that the human body is actually a microcosm of the whole universe. Mm. Everything's in us, like mm. the centre of the universe, people who are into uh, the chakra system mm. and those who believe in that, um, they actually regard, and, and also in yogic cultures, they regard the spine as the centre uh, of the universe. And interestingly, this also made me think about there is a correlation to do with the center of gravity, so our navel, our belly button. It, it, it correlates with how sports people and athletes are actually successful. So as I was kind of looking into this, some research shows us that the center of gravity can determine the difference between those of us who are better swimmers and those of us who are better runners. So it's not really the person's height, actually. It's the, it's the position of their navel to the rest of their body. So, for, for example, West African runners have a higher centre of gravity compared with their European counterparts because they have a relatively long, longer legs. So if they have longer legs, it means that their navel, their belly button, is sort of like around three centimetres higher. And Europeans, on the other hand have a longer midriff region, so like they've got a longer torso, which means that Europeans are better at riding waves, waves of water. And this is, this is actually um, supported by research out there. So for me, this dream, the belly button dream, which you were really took too far, Thema, actually speaks about the architecture of the human body. I think Roald Dahl probably didn't realize he was doing this. And it also links back to the other dreams um, in terms of the, the theme of specialness in these dreams 
and the theme of these children wanting to take control and the ability to make things happen in their world. The other, the other place that I'd like to go to is this, um, the part when Sophie, just before Sophie meets the queen. So I was pondering about the word queen and queen comes from the old English word quen, which means woman and wife. I thought that was very interesting. And it connects with the way the BFG, when he's introduced to the queen, he calls her sultana and golden sovereign. And sovereign actually comes from sovereign, which means supreme. Um, so, you know, this idea of a supreme being. Um, and sultana is from sultano, which is Italian, and that means wife, mother and daughter. And that kind of took me all the way back to our earlier discussion when you and I were kind of talking about the quality of the bond that the BFG and Sophie have. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how there is a mixture of, you know, the, the, the sexual element, the Oedipal element, but not very overtly. Mm -hmm. And then there is also the pater paternal yes. aspect. Yes, absolutely. And um, as I was reading this, I remember thinking that uh, for Sophie, that's the only maternal figure there is because we talked about how in uh, for Sophie and the BFG, she kind of plays that maternal role. But here is this maternal figure that she can turn to and trust to fix things for her. That's mm -hmm. essentially the hope that she goes to see the queen with. And the queen is able to deliver on that. So it's there's something quite maternal that she's seeking from her and, and the queen is providing. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, and uh, we will say a bit more about what the queen represents. Mm -hmm. And I think the queen represents, you're quite right, I agree with that Fatima, the, the queen is very nurturing and um, um, kind of like a saviour in a way. Mm. Um, and I think not just for Sophie, but for the BFG. Yes. And for Roldal. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, and also like I thought it was interesting that the queen had been so desexualized, like she's sleeping alone in her bed, that was something I noticed. And this kind of maternal, desexualized energy, where whereas, um, and that's very much kind of how we see maternal instinct often, in the way that we, you know, read about it or it's presented to us. That kind of figure of sort of like Virgin Mary. Yes, 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 very much like that actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, it's so. This is so poignant mm -hmm. because you've just took me. Mm -hmm. You've just like we've frozen on this image of the Virgin Mary and that kind of very neatly knits together with what I'm just about to sort of say. So, which is kind of like a contrast to the Virgin Mary. So I was thinking queen, a queen, right? So I was thinking, okay, beehive colony, what do queen bees do? And <laughs> queen bees, are the ones that are actually the most sexually mm. mature mm. and sexually reproductive mm. and they have their bee workers mm. and I was thinking okay so this is a queen bee who has been impregnated as we mentioned earlier impregnated by the BFG's you know dream he blows this dream into the queen's psyche which we could we could um, consider that as equivalent to the mother womb, the dark unconscious and the vessel. 
So I was thinking, okay, she's been impregnated with this precognitive dream. So Jung talks about precognitive dreams. Just for our listeners out there, um, it, it's another word for prophetic dreams. So some of our listeners, I'm sure some of you have had, it's not very common, they're, they're quite rare, but the dreams where, you know, you see something and then it actually happens like the week after or a few days afterwards. So it, it made me think of, of her being actually the sexually mature female. And also, you know, when um, Sophie's sitting on the windowsill in the story and she's kind of waiting. So the, the BFG's done his business. <laughs> He's impregnated the queen and off he trots away. Um, I'll wait for you, Sophie. I don't know where he goes, but I think he kind of disappears from the scene. And Sophie sat there on the windowsill and it, it made me think of, of the birthing process. Okay. It made me think of gestation. Sophie's there. Of course, she doesn't wait nine months for the queen to wake up. <laughs> but, but there is this idea, there's this motif of, okay... You know, the queen's stirring in her sleep. She's making these rumbling noises. And something's gestating, something's growing in her womb psyche. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, when Sophie waits and the queen wakes up, then it's almost like birth has happened. Something that was dead or, or not quite alive has come alive. You know, it, it's come to reality which is when she wakes up and she's like, oh, I had this dream, and yes, it's real. That's what I was thinking. And also the, the dream or the baby has been created, you know, it's been designed and it's been put together. So there's something about that also. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, and it, it made me think of other things, sort of like, you know, other matriarchal um, animal kingdoms. So, you know, we know that um, African elephants, they're headed by the female elephant, aren't they? And then there's the hyenas, they also have a matriarchal system. I believe lions do, orca whales, so other you know, mammalian sort of societies. They do, but I think for lions, it's interesting that the lioness hunts, and then the lion eats, then the cub eats, the cubs eat, and then the lionesses eat what's left. So maybe it's not as matriarchal as oh, we that's a, that's a really interesting point. So the lioness hunts. Yes, the lionesses hunt together and then the lions eat or the lion eats and then what's left, the cubs eat and then what's left from that, the... So it's very Pakistani in some ways. Oh, I believe so. And, and Pakistani, but also quite African mm -hmm. because it reminds me, so when you said about the lioness is the predator, really, mm. um, there is this queen and I can't quite recall what the name is, but in Egyptian history, there is a queen who actually was very predatory and she was very violent, very violent female. Yeah, I, I, but I can't remember the name of, of this queen. Okay. So, uh, this leads us on to the mother archetype um, of how the queen is almost like the fairy godmother and um, she's kind of this benevolent, uh, kind of, it's a dichotomy really because she's depicted as this nurturing, supportive and it's almost a bit like earlier when we were talking about the classification of good dreams and nightmares, and that's quite polarised. Um, but this is also polarised. So the queen is this 
feminine figure who is benevolent and she's she can't do any wrong and i think later when they have the royal breakfast the bfgs having unlimited amounts of eggs and sausages and <laughs> we all know what those represent <laughs> And um, she reminded me here, you know, she said, go and get some more. I think she's ordering the her servants or the, the head butler, Mr. Yes. Tibbs. Yeah. She's asking him to go and get more eggs and sausages. And yes, it's a phallic <laughs> sausage. Um, but she reminded me of the goddess Aditi, which is in the Vedic uh, tradition. So it's a Hindu goddess. And she's known for her limitlessness. And okay. there's no bounds to her. There are no boundaries okay i think that 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 would make sense because she is again like that's that's the the thing that they've created with lots of uh generosity that the queen is you know um she's giving really yeah. isn't she she's she's very generous isn't she and that sort of reminds me what you just said there about the um kleinian good breast hmm so for our listeners out there melanie klein who i i follow very um very intensely because that was my training but Melanie Klein was um, a psychoanalyst who spent much of her time of course in England um, and she talked about how the mother nourishes and supplies uh, which is the good breast but she can also frustrate the infant by withholding so you know things like when she's not able to feed very quickly or there's a delay in the feeding process and the infant's there perhaps crying frustrated waiting to be nourished um, and this is very early on in the first sort of, you know, three to four months of an infant's life. Um, so this is what we mean here by um, the, the queen being representative of the, the good breast, the limitless, um, gratifying breast. So um, she also reminds me of, um, you know, the tarot system, the tarot mm -hmm. card system. Yes. So I was thinking the queen is kind of a mix up and an amalgamation of the High Priestess card and also the Empress energy. So when I was thinking of the High Priestess, you know, it's like, right, the BFG and Sophie, they've kind of confessed in a way, they've, they've kind of confessed in a way um, to the Queen. So they're kind of saying, look, but they're doing it through impregnating this dream they're not really confessing directly. So in Catholicism, when you go and see the priest behind the veil and there is the sacramental seal, mm -hmm. and of course the priest is bound by that, they can't share that confession with anybody. And that's almost, you know, that's what we do mm -hmm. as therapists. We, we are bound by confidentiality and we respect that. Mm -hmm. So we are almost, we have an oath as well with our you mm -hmm. know patients. We carry that oath with us. So I was thinking it's almost like they're confessing that these giants are eating up children and look what they're doing. But it's in a very backdoor way. Mm -hmm. It's like they've got to have the queen in a different state of consciousness while she's sleeping because it's safe. Mm, I didn't think of it like that, but that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, and there's also something that stood out for me was how approachable the queen was in some ways, right? Like they could just climb into her window and, and impregnate her mind with a dream and 
initially when Sophie, I don't know if it's Sophie or the BFG who proposes the idea of going to the Queen to fix this whole situation. Oh, I think it was Sophie. I think it was Sophie also. And I thought it was a joke and I, because it just seemed so absurd that they would be able to go to the Queen and have her fix this. And then they actually do it. And the whole time they talk about, you know, there's a little talk about the security and stuff, but it's so accessible that her window is open and you can just, her window is open and you can just barge right in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that seemed quite unusual, but interesting. Yeah, very unusual. Uh, do, don't you think um, that Sophie takes a huge risk? I think so, but I think on some level she's she's quite determined that she will be able to get through to her and mm-hmm. be able to do what she wants because she's quite excited about putting that dream together and reaching out to her um, and she knows the place because she's taken walks there before with the orphanage mm-hmm. that she used to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, just, just one further um, point um, is that, you know, when the BFG says, uh, oh, can I ask you, can I request something special from you or something like that from the Queen? And he says, can I, and this is just before they go off to capture the giants. And he says, well, can I bring my collection of dreams um, back with me? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, right, so this is the BFG, a masculine figure. Or, or predominantly masculine because we have both masculine and feminine within us, mm-hmm. within all of us. But he's somebody who wants to, perhaps he sees the queen as a, a safe haven. Again, that mm-hmm. vessel, she's the one who'll be able to um, house his prized possessions mm-hmm. because he says it's taken me years mm-hmm. to collect these dreams. They're so special to him. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that, but yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that I noticed as I read this was, uh, and of course I recognize where this is coming from for me, but it was the Queen and, and the British Empire um, inserting their nose in business that it doesn't belong in. So you, it's na lena, na dena, but the Queen is ready to dispatch her army and have these giants taken away from this unknown country that's not even on the atlas. Um and then take responsibility for it and then how that's applauded and uh, she's you know really admired for for stepping in and and fixing something that's not hers to fix Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it stirred up a little bit of my post-colonial angst a little bit Mm -hmm. but I did notice that happening and of course I wouldn't have read it like this 20 years ago I recognize that this is very much you know every time you read it there's a the context is different it was written in a different context but this is where my mind went with it. And I know you might have different feelings about this. I think I'm, I'm fairly neutral on most matters, even political. So even though Britain's my home country, I think it's fair to say that they, they, they are, well, I would hold them responsible for certain, you know, warfare and matters where they probably should have not interfered in you know I mean because for me again it's coming from a personal place because for me the last resort is war Mm -hmm. I I like to keep peace and harmony as much as I can Mm -hmm. and then the last resort would be warfare (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I I think Mm -hmm. okay all right so Dr. Farah I think you have some more stuff to say about the queen yeah so okay there is a story that I came across um, and I 
was reading the news, I was browsing news articles, and, and you know what, I don't know about you, Fatima, but whenever I read news articles, um, I'm very sort of, um, like I don't really engage very much in it, so I'm not somebody who's on it all the time, I think that can have quite negative effects, mm -hmm. because I feel that it can be mixed with, it's kind of fact, but it's mixed with some interpretation, and it feels to me like it's not the whole and absolute truth. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was coming across some articles about B Buckingham Palace because, you know, how the BFG was published in 1982. So it was around the 80s that we're talking about when Roald Dahl was, you know, conjuring up the story and all of that. And so in one article, you know, if, if we're reading about this uh, man, um, it's a burglary that happened, which I'm going, going on to talk about. But in one article, it'll say he was 32 years old. And then when I'm cross-checking with another news article, the other news article will say, oh, he's 37 years old. And so this is a very minor point. I know I'm only talking about somebody's age, but I've noticed that over the years of my life, mm -hmm. that there are discrepancies even in news articles, which will happen because it depends on who's writing it, which journalist, you know. And so. then who is publishing it. Mm. Mm. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, this chap called Michael Fagan, let's say 30s because someone was saying 32, mm -hmm. somebody else was saying 37. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you know, but Michael Fagan in 1982, which is interesting, he broke into Buckingham Palace twice, I think once in June and once in July. Um, so he broke in um, and apparently, this is what I was reading, and at one time he was roaming around the, the the halls of the palace and he was sipping wine <laughs> and then at one point um this is his own statement apparently he said um it was like goldilocks and the three bears i was sitting on one throne and saying oh this is too soft <laughs> and he was sitting on another throne and saying oh this is too hard um, i had no idea so do you think that it happened around the same time and in some ways inspired uh, Roald Dahl to write about this? Or? Well, yeah, well, you know, I was thinking this, but in my investigations, the burglary didn't really happen um, longer, like earlier enough for Roald Dahl to have thought about it and then projected it into his narrative. But actually, this is our suspicion. I, I believe it could have had some impact but what we know is the burglaries happened in june and july and the bfg was published apparently earlier that year so mm. i that according to my investigation <laughs> okay um so yeah and, and the, then the other thing is the the second time he broke in he actually barged into the queen's bedroom and asked to speak to her oh and was she as approachable as she was in the I'm not in quite the so sure. I think she asked him, who are you? And this is also depicted in the Crown series. Have oh. you heard of the I, I have. I think I've seen the first season, but I couldn't get through it. Oh, it okay. Was, yeah, I saw a bit of it. I think they've re-calibrated re, um, re, uh, the same scene where the Queen is saying, who are you? And he talks to her for like 10 minutes. Okay, no, I, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't gone that far. I okay. stopped after the first season. But very interesting. And then the second time he was uh, sort of roaming around having cheddar cheese and crackers in the palace. And that made me think, I mean, you've broke into Buckingham Palace. You could have got some steak and roast potatoes with mushroom sauce or some extravagant meal. And all you can think of is having cheddar cheese and crackers. 
I'm sure getting a steak would mean, you know, waking somebody else up to do it for him. So he yes. probably didn't want to alarm anybody. <laughs> but that's an interesting story. Thank you for sharing. And we can keep wondering about how that's connected or not connected to the BFG. Absolutely. Yes. you for listening to this episode of our series on the Pakistani couch. We really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive. We hope you'll feel able to write in to us either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams. Your dreams will be anonymized and any personal details won't be shared. We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours. There are two main ways that you can write into us. The first is to email us on the Pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch. Until next time, take good care of yourselves.